When talks of a COVID-19 vaccine first surfaced, countries were quick to secure the necessary doses for their respective nations. This prompted a debate of whether or not vaccine nationalism was the best way to go in battling a worldwide pandemic. And now, with the COVAX facility in place, experts are stressing the importance of global cooperation and vaccine multilateralism. So we're going to discuss this in more detail. Uh, We're very pleased to invite to the program Rebecca Weintraub. She's the uh, faculty director of the Global Health Delivery Project at the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, uh, talking about the COVAX initiative and how perhaps without the big superpowers, uh, this may or may not affect this detrimentally. Hello. Hello. Professor Weintraub, thank thank you so much for joining us. Uh, First question, there are some reports that a a total of 156 nations have joined this uh, WHO COVAX initiative, uh, and certainly a lot of press coverage here in Korea uh, as well. For those who may not be aware of this, and I I believe uh, people in the United States may be part of that uh, population, could you explain what exactly uh, the goals of the COVAX initiative is? Sure, please do. So COVAX is one of the four pillars of Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, ACT. And that was initiated by the World Health Organization, the European Commission, as well as the Gates Foundation in April to thwart global transmission and to end the pandemic. And the ACT Accelerator, the larger body, has four components, diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, and health system strengthening. COVAX, the vaccine pillar, is a global risk-sharing mechanism for pooled procurement and then the equitable distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine portfolio. And all participating countries, regardless of their income levels, will have equal access to the vaccines once they're developed. The initial aim is to have 2 billion doses available by the end of 2021, which should be sufficient to protect high-risk and vulnerable people as well as the frontline workforce. So for most low-income nations and many higher-income self-financing countries that have no bilateral deals with manufacturers, COVAX is the only viable way in which their citizens would actually gain access to the wide portfolio of COVID-19 vaccines. And for some countries, some of which may be directly negotiating deals with vaccine manufacturers, it also serves as an insurance policy Mm. to protect their citizens both directly and indirectly. Right. And Korea has been uh, doing that, uh, as you just mentioned. Uh, As we say, uh, some of these major powers, uh, China, along with the U.S. and and Russia, signing their own bilateral deals and declining participation in the COVAX coalition for now. But according to uh, some experts, China seems uh, perhaps likely to join and has been showing overall support uh, for the uh, mechanism. What is your opinion on on, on that likelihood? And, and what is your decision on the U.S.'s decision not to be a part of this? Mm. Oh, complicated question. I'll yeah. take the first part first. So you're, so you're right. It does seem likely that China will join COVAX. And uh, my personal opinion is, yes, we hope China and all the superpowers, actually all nations, join COVAX. In addition, considering China already has a range of vaccine candidates in their own portfolio, it actually will be quite important to China to show they're participating in this global mechanism, not only for, obviously, the own safety of their own citizens, but obviously the market share for the, for the procurement of the Chinese vaccines. 
And the second part of your question, you're right. The U.S. and Russia have refused to participate in COVAX, and this weakens the collective aims of the initiative. I personally believe that for our global security and truly for the health of all nations, COVAX is a vital mechanism because we need global coordination, global procurement uh, for a vaccine portfolio. And there's two reasons why. First, we also we know that the first-generation vaccines will likely be less effective than ongoing candidates. So this will be kind of an evolving portfolio. And we're trying to stop transmission here, which means we need to protect everyone, not on the basis of who can pay, right. but actually to minimize transmission across the globe. Uh, there have been uh, various officials, uh, for example, the Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad uh, Javad Zarif, calling for multilateral, multilateralism over unilateralism in terms of combating COVID-19. Uh, Richard Hatchett, who is leading the COVAX vaccine research, says that COVID-19 cannot be beaten one country at a time. Uh, I think you kind of similarly echoed those uh, views uh, in the previous question, but could you give us... Uh, your insights and help us understand better why it is important that global cooperation is necessary to combat COVID-19. Please do. Sure. And, you know, I, I wrote about this early uh, in April that this is a pandemic. So this is already spread globally um, in matters of weeks. It's spread across the world and yeah. showing how interconnected we are, our global economies are. And we also know in the midst of this global pandemic, we already have global governance bodies to allocate, distribute, and verify the delivery of the COVID-19 vaccine portfolio. So right now, this is actually time we need the science to leverage then the global governance bodies to inform a global strategy. The uh, head of the WHO, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, uh, said COVAX is the goal is to provide 2 billion doses of vaccines by the end of next year. Uh, the uh, WHO's chief scientist says the agency is hoping the vaccine will have at least 70% efficacy levels. I, I guess uh, for us uh, lay people, we're not sure what, what exactly that means. What does a, a 70% or 50% effective vaccine means? And uh, is there a possibility? Can we preclu- preclude the possibility that a country outside of this COVAX coalition, which does seem to encompass pretty much uh, most of the world, that they would be able to come up with something more effective uh, and uh, earlier than that uh, end of next year timetable? Mm. Okay, gr- great question. Again, I'm going to divide it into two parts. So first, let's think about what is vaccine efficacy. So vaccine efficacy is the proportionate reduction in disease among the vaccinated group. So a vaccine efficacy of 90% indicates 90% reduction in disease occurrence among the vaccinated group or 90% reduction from the number of cases you would expect if they had not been vaccinated. A 50% vaccine efficacy means that someone who's vaccinated is 50% less likely to get the disease. So when we ask experts about the general consensus, um, which we just completed a study on this, it is actually quite clear that the first-generation vaccines will likely clear, several of them will clear the 50% vaccine efficacy hurdles that the FDA put about. But many of the second-generation vaccines, that is where we'll likely see several candidates that will actually go beyond that in the range of 50 to 80%. There's much to learn about these second-generation vaccines, and we'll have to wait to see and learn from the clinical trial data as it's released. 
We're actually building a model with the Center for Global Development that will release on Thursday for the public to be able to attest and evaluate the manufacturing lags that will come about as first and second generation vaccines get approved. All right. Well, uh, we certainly learned a lot. Professor Weintraub, thank you so much for joining us and uh, lending us your expertise. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Professor Rebecca Weintraub from the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the uh, Faculty Director of the Global Health Delivery Project. We're going to get more insights uh, on the issue of uh, vaccine multilateralism. Uh, Joining us, uh, very pleased to have from uh, City Universities of New York's Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy, Professor Scott Ratson on the line. Hello. Hello, Henry. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. Thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, first question, during the initial stages of developing a COVID vaccine, countries were trying to secure supply uh, from various means, and this then sparked a controversy or at least a concern about the phenomenon known as vaccine nationalism. And now we're seeing perhaps a more coalescing of countries around the world. They're stressing that uh, we do need to cooperate, uh, maybe be more multilateral in our approach. Uh, could you also help us understand why that approach is preferable to maybe the temptation of a country trying to just go rogue and, and go about and getting their own supply? Sure. Well, thank you, Henry, and thank you for having me here. And it was good to hear the end of... Um Professor Weinstein, we actually just wrote a piece together in Harvard uh-huh. Business Review on why we need to build trust uh, in from the, both the business side as well as government side and how vaccines are important and not only the, the showstopper that's necessary, but necessary for us to build back better and be able to get back to the world that we knew uh, before COVID and also to control uh, COVID in a meaningful way. The idea of both vaccine multilateralism really is is a, a a wonky term, if I can say that, mm-hmm. uh, that really what we're trying to do is get more of a vaccine diplomacy, that vaccines are necessary uh, and that people need to understand it. And it's not just people understand at an individual level why I need to take this, but also at a policymaking and, and national and governmental level of why it's good for our population. So how we move from community protection on an individual and community scale to a global scale. And I, I say it's a wonky term in that if we know that there's people moving beyond you know, national borders and certainly the microbe or viruses also go over the borders, we clearly have to have a multilateral and global solution to the COVID crisis. Uh, so in short, you know, vaccine diplomacy is what we need, and that means we need to have uh, decision makers at the table, proverbial table, uh, globally. Uh, and uh, this, what I feel to be a very uh, uh, clever and uh, effective acronym, CONVINCE Initiative, which uh, stands for the COVID New Vaccine Information Communication and Education Initiative. Could you t- talk more about this and, and why overall effective communication is uh, quite important in, in combating the entire pandemic? Well, Riley, thank you for asking me uh, this question. I've been editing the Journal of Health Communication for 25 years, and the program at at City University of New York is Health Communication for Social Change. Mm. So what communication is, is it's not just a radio show. It's also having the radio show and the message, giving people the information, communicating at a time when they need it and know what to do with it, a vaccine literacy, and educating so we continue this in an ongoing way. The Convince Initiative um, came out of a number of discussions that were really multilateral discussions with um, 
a number of people both uh, from different parts of the world, business community, and others, that saw a need not just to let this happen behind closed doors, but to bring this into the boardroom and bring this into uh, the place where where people are, are living and working. And one of the pieces that we've helped support with the Convince Initiative is just to do a study that uh, and ask the question, if a vaccine were available, would you take it? Mm. And, you know, we did this in 19 countries. And, you know, suffice it to say, uh, very good for your listeners and people in South Korea, 81% said they would take it. Uh, however, you know, other countries in the world are much lower. Uh, and the whole idea of convince is to one build upon the success that's that's already there. People that know a vaccine is a good thing to do. They protected their, their kids uh uh, for measles, they pr- protected and eradicated against you know polio and smallpox over the years. So we want to keep convincing people this is the right fundamental aspect of what we have in society to trust science and um, to build a, an immunized, uh, p- protected world. You mentioned the South Korean example, and it, it does it is quite evident at least here in Korea uh, there tends to be among the population a higher uh, trust in government and in the way the government issues guidelines in things like uh, combating a pandemic or even uh, with uh, vaccines, uh, perhaps a little bit less so, I would venture to say, in in the U.S. as far as that trust level. But the skepticism of vaccines that's been going on for years now, uh, it's not just a governmental uh, responsibility. What do you think um, the role that uh, the private sector or even the business community uh, could play in in, uh, helping people become more vaccine literate and, and building their trust in, in possible vaccines that come out uh, for COVID-19? Well, that is, you know, a, an excellent question and that uh, why convince and others we've risen to give uh, one of the largest multilateral business groups, the U.S. Council for International Business, linking with the um, International Organization of Employers, International Chamber of Commerce, and other business groups that know that we need a vaccine and we need not only a vaccine in a vial, we need vaccine that will work in people, in communities. So the groups have banded together. And, you know, another uh, piece that we found is that, and you are correct, that in South Korea, uh, people are trusting of their employer. And it's amongst as high as 78% of the people have said, you know, I will follow my employer's recommendation mm-hmm. to get a vaccine. I believe that my employer is working with the government to determine you know, the right necessary requirements for me to, to return to the workplace and to live safely and so forth. So the business community is integral uh, to the success of uh, addressing the pandemic. Uh, I think you know, it's great to see already the success that you have had in, in South Korea. Uh, you are also correct to say that there is more skepticism in the United States and, and other countries for a variety of reasons. But that doesn't mean we have to give up. We, we believe that we still can address the challenges that people uh, question vaccines for a variety of reasons, from conspiracies to unproven science, to, uh, to give them the information they need to make the right decision and hopefully you know, get immunized quickly and, and get us back to the space we all would like to be. Unfortunately, politics does play a role in this, and and whether it is a a geopolitical uh, rivalry between the United States and China, and then uh, the ensuing skepticism of a multilateral organization like the World Health Organization. Uh, We know that uh, President Donald Trump recently announced plans to cut uh, funding uh, for the WHO. They claim, uh, well, Trump claims that. 
the WHO is in cahoots with China. They were kind of uh, uh, kind of papering over the severity of the pandemic in the initial stages. Uh, on the other hand, um, someone you consider to be a political ally of Trump, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, recently pledging to boost WHO funding by uh, 30%. Uh, China is also committed to uh, continue to uh, fund the WHO. How- in terms of their viability and, and in terms of their financial solvency, uh, where are they at right now? And what do you think needs to be, be done by the international community to uh, help uh, keep it afloat? Well, well, thank you for asking. Of course, the, the WHO, has, since 1948, has been the world organization that people have gone to for setting norms and standards and attracting some of the best uh, health professionals and public health professionals from throughout the world. Uh, Every government should be supporting the member state organization uh, with the World Health Organization. And unfortunately, we have had a political blip that's in the way here. I do believe that the WHO will get the appropriate funding from both member states and other donor groups that can give funds to address the um, the COVID challenge. Uh, they are uh, the place that also attracts and does delve into the evidence in a way that we can help set the right standards for uh, for getting a vaccine and for creating a vaccine literacy. The, the short is, is that politics should not play a role in a global organization that's dealing with health issues. Mm-hmm. Health is the only common currency that we have. And, you know, when we think about it that way, we should really protect those organizations. And hopefully um, what we've seen from both national academies and in nearly every every country of science Supporting WHO, we need to to work together, both business and uh, scientists and governments, to have an organization that we can trust. And finally, just briefly, uh, Russia, one of their reasons uh, for not joining COVAX, they claim to have uh, the first to market uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Some skepticism as to its efficacy and maybe even its uh, safety. What are your views on that and what would be the possible uh, dangers of rushing a vaccine to market? Well, for sure, there's, this is not science fiction. You know, we, the United States has called this warp speed uh, as a scientific mm-hmm. piece, and the, the Russians have suggested Sputnik 5 as if this is another space race. Yeah. We need to have the right science and time intact to make sure that this vaccine does not move us backward, that if we have a vaccine that is not efficacious, as you were speaking before, but even more importantly, is not harmful to healthy people, we need to make sure that that's in place. Uh, so I am concerned about any vaccine that's rushed without the scientific trials, without having the right amount of people that are, are tracked, and we have transparent data that meet global standards and standards that have been in place for approving not just medicines, but approving vaccines. And the difference with this is the vaccine is injected into a healthy person. We might have a lower standard to give a medicine to somebody who may already be sick, but we need to have the right standards. So I am very concerned that we get into a space race mentality right. and um, we have our own science fiction that, um, that, that is owned by whether it's presidents or prime ministers or right. others who are in the wrong, not in the public health interest. Professor Scott Ratson, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Henry. Good luck to uh, everyone there in um, your um, continued uh, interest in advancing uh, a COVID-free world. Thank Thank you. you very much.